0: and uh, I'm going to draw that largely from the last chapter of, uh, of Romans and uh, all I have to do is find where it is. Where am I? Where indeed am I? This is number five, isn't it? Number five, yes. Straight up to fifteen? <laughs> That's the one, got it. Yes, um, the camp. That's good. Three. Oh no, there we go. Ah, oh, there it is. Always getting confused with these notes. <laughs> Praise God. So there we have um, Symphony Number no. Five. So if you'd all like to stand? No, it's all right. <laughs> This is, um, uh, of course, uh, Beethoven, who i mentioned before. And this is about the only classical piece of music I sit down and listen to. da 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 you know, because it's very good. <laughs> and uh, Beethoven wrote, uh, wrote this, and uh, you will notice there's a circle around the first uh, set of notes. And they call this the theme of the symphony. Symphonies have themes or motives that uh, repeat themselves throughout the piece. And uh, this, is a, uh, this is the theme of his Fifth Symphony. Someone wrote about this, saying that uh, the Fifth Symphony is what could be considered a motif symphony, in that there is a recurring theme, or in this case, motif, throughout the symphony that provides thematic unity and consistency. The rhythmic, three-short, one-long note combi- uh, combination that pervades the first and third movements uh, in particular. Now I have Maestro here, who is going to... I'll give him the next set of notes, there they are. So he's going to play that for us. <laughs> oh, wow, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> have you, do you recognize that? Yeah. You recognize that? That's the letter V. That's the letter V. Oh, yes, that's true. Yes, I I read that. Yes. Yes, it is. That's right. Yes. Once again, brother. it, that's it. Yay. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you, God. <laughs> So why are we having a music lesson? <laughs> well, because the last chapters, what we call the practical chapters from 12 through to uh, 16, uh, to me, have this theme, one theme, that repeats itself time and time again, just as this piece does in, um, in Beethoven's symphony whenever you hear that you say, ah, symphony number no. five, yes I've heard that before, I recognize that and the same thing happens here in, the, in, the, uh, in these chapters but the theme in those chapters uh, when you look at it well what is it? what is that theme? let me read one, one of the verses from 13 verse 9 for the commandments You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And this is the theme that runs right through these practical chapters. You see it in chapter after chapter after chapter, just coming to the surface, this perpetual theme of Paul's practical chapters to us. To believers picked up by um, James when he says if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well and Peter having puffed up your souls by your sorry having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart And then Paul to Philemon, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. John also, in his first letter, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So this becomes the practical theme of these chapters. That we should love one another. That there should be love in the church. That there should be preferring one another within the church, within the body of Christ. And again, remember, we are dealing with the book on basic Christianity. Basic Christianity. Yeah. And when we come to practice, that is the theme. If you read uh, First Corinthians, of course, uh, uh, you, you see this again appearing from time to time. And then when you come to the 13th chapter, of course, the love chapter, which uh, was not written for weddings, but was written for Pentecostal churches, really. (laughs) Because it's sandwiched between 12 and 14, and it's all about the exercise of gifts and he sees fit to stop and to go for a whole chapter describing what love is, lest they forget, lest they rush off uh, and, uh, and become charismatic without love. Loveless charisma, if you like. So I'm going to, first of all, just run through some of the preliminary chapters, just pick out a few verses, just so we get this idea that this is what it is about. This is the theme. So chapter 12, verse 9, Let love be genuine, he says. What have I got here? No, that must be later. Yeah. Then in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, giving, giving preference to one another in showing honour. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Verse 8, I think we're now in um, chapter 13. Verse 8, owe no man anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Again, what the law has aimed at has been fulfilled in the one who loves. Verse 9, all the commandments can be summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to his neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Chapter 14, verse 1, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And 15, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of you, in verse 2, please his neighbour for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. I was once at a combined a charismatic meeting, I suppose it was, in Brisbane, the Glad Tidings Tabernacle, and uh, there was a, a very uh, prosperous uh, work uh, elsewhere in the city, that was into dancing, demons and prostrations which was in the 70's was the, the flavour of the month for certain churches and, uh, and, and that was kind of their liberty every meeting, as soon as the music started they would be dancing around but then uh, there were many other churches and this was one of the churches uh, where I was uh, that was definitely not into dancing so there, the whole Glad Tidings was full of people and uh, I remember I was sitting up the back maybe on the balcony and I looked down the front And there over to one side was this little knot of people. I knew where they came from as soon as they started dancing uh, in the service and everyone else was not. And I thought to myself, well, what are they doing? They are saying, look at us, we are free. You are in bondage, but we're free because we're dancing. And I thought to myself, well, they should have read this. You know, uh, in favour, preferring one another if they don't dance, I'm not going to offend them because I feel free to and that's exactly what they were doing they were not paying attention to their responsibility they were not being uh, respectful of, of where they were rather they wanted to show off my freedom my liberty too bad what happens to you that is not the spirit that is not the theme or the motive of the symphony they missed that bit chapter 15, do we read that? Yes. So love is the theme. How solicitous is the apostle with this virtue being maintained in the churches? Love is not the sentimental, sappy version that uh, that we see so often. That has nothing to do with truth. You know, just let love be love. Don't worry about truth. It is not that. What do we find? Love trumps your liberty love trumps your freedom so if I am free to eat meat but my brother finds himself offended at the sight of meat probably be- because he thinks that this has been offered to idols and that was the problem in the Corinthian church meat I <laughs> meat uh, sold in the marketplace probably had been offered to an idol and so that the Christian felt offended that I should eat this meat The apostle said, meat's meat. Doesn't matter what's happened to it. It's only going to go in and go out again. No problem. But, if it offend my brother, I will not eat meat ever again in my life. I will not drink wine ever again in my life if it offend my brother. So, this is the theme that runs through here. It is not you. It is your brethren that count in this matter. Love paces itself and adjusts itself to the weaker brother. You know, the strong will say, well, we're going to run ahead. You know, we've got the strength, we know, we have the knowledge. But what about your brother who's lagging behind, he can't keep up? Well, no, you, you will bring yourself back, you will pace yourself. You will adjust yourself to him. Which would save a lot of annoyance on the part of many of us. You know, we get annoyed, this brother, he's just not learning, he's not changing, he's not growing up. And, uh, you know, why should I, spiritual man that I am, have to hang back because of him? (laughs) Well, this is exactly what the Apostle is suggesting that we do. Love involves hospitality to the saints, material aid to the needy brother. Love prizes the fellowship and the unity of the Church of God more than anything. Love is the fulfilment of the law. It's what it aimed aimed at, but did not achieve but it is to be achieved in the church of God. When I was first a Christian, I was involved in a church that had a split. I cannot remember what it was about. I cannot remember why they split, but I do remember the fact that it did happen, and the effects of that have remained to this day. And I thought to myself, well, you know, if this was such a big issue, why did it happen? And uh, why do people want to separate fellowship? Because this brother does not quite agree with what I, I, I teach or preach or hold. And yet we are not talking about the basic uh, issues of the Christian faith. We're not talking about the deity of Christ or the sacrificial uh, work of Christ or, or, the, um, or creation or these things uh, that liberals go in for. No, we, we, are, we are still of an evangelical persuasion but if my brother believes something different about certain things I can still have fellowship with him. And I should not be breaking fellowship uh, for something less than what is fundamental to the faith. Certainly if, um, of course, you know, we, we have uh, spawned our denominations and our groups over these things, but uh, it does not mean that they should be persisting in the life of the church. So let's come to uh, Romans 15, and we're going to start in uh, Verse 22. This is the reason I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey by you there. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia by way of you. I know that when I come to you I will come in the fullness of the blessing of God." So for having for a long time desired to go to Spain this was his ambition, this was his plan, he was going to take the gospel to Spain and uh, it was nearing the time when he was going to embark upon this journey. He was going to stop in Rome on the way to get encouragement, to share with the Roman believers as he went on to Spain so he had these plans he was a man of plans he was not a mystic who was driven by the impulse of the moment he knew where he was going and he knew why he he was going there I remember one of the first camps I went to it could have even been here at Beulah Heights a long time ago and uh, this this brother was at the camp and uh, he was there with a group of people and he was talking and saying you know I never book in for a camp because the Spirit of God may say, go to another camp. So he would come in a day at a time until the Spirit moved him. And then we would go elsewhere. And I met a second guy exactly the same. I never book in for a camp because I am led by God. You know, He could lead me somewhere else. I thought, well, this is a great way to lead, lead the Christian life. You know, What would you get done if you were waiting for the moving of the Spirit every day before you did anything. Oh, I don't think I'll get up this morning. I've had no impulse. No unction yet. No, the unction is to stay in bed. <laughs> well, that was, uh, that was him. So Paul had these plans. Now, he was bringing aid to Jerusalem. This project had been more than a year in the making. There was a, a famine in, in the land of Israel. And uh, the saints in Jerusalem were suffering because of this famine. So Paul had instigated a collection among the Gentile churches. This was very, very important to the apostle. Remember that he was apostle to the Gentiles. Many in Jerusalem, of the believers, were a bit askance at this idea that he should go to the Gentiles. And so uh, this was very close to his heart because he wanted to raise this aid as a blessing from the Gentiles, back to the Jerusalem church. To repay in some way the gospel, the spiritual blessings that they, the Gentiles, had received from the Jews, let us in some way repay that. And so it was very important to him as apostle to the Gentiles to bring this aid to Jerusalem. And maybe this was the greatest privilege of his life, be able to do this. So, they of the Macedonian churches besought Paul, now this was of course the other side of the Adriatic Sea from where uh, Turkey or or, uh, Achaia is, um, Thessalonica and uh, down to Corinth, all these places. Uh, These in Macedonia were poor. And you remember uh, it reads that they out of their poverty gave. They, they implored Paul for the opportunity to give to the, churches, the church in Jerusalem. And Paul says they did give, but they gave out of their poverty. They could really not afford what they gave. And Paul gave instructions elsewhere, you know, for the collection to the Corinthians. When I come, I don't want any collections. I don't want someone going around with the bag then. I don't want some emotional appeal. Uh, I want you to attend to this before I arrive. So, in other words, he was not doing that technique, which I've seen from time to time, when they say, you know, we had this need, so many thousands of dollars. Now, all those people who will give a thousand dollars, please stand up. Have you ever seen that? I have. You've heard about that, yes. And of course, you know, someone who's obviously well off, well, why isn't he standing? You see, so he feels peer pressure, says, you better stand up. And I, and I think, how can this be done in the Church of God? That that should happen. So Paul says, no, there will be no pressure. You will give freely, out of your own free will, as you are moved. There will be no pressure for you to do that. It is out of the love of your heart and what you have determined to do. That I want you to do. So we read in verse 30 of chapter 15, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem now he he was concerned at this point about this project so he voices that and for my service for Jerusalem that that it may be acceptable to the saints were the saints in Jerusalem prepared to accept Gentile help at this point? See, Judaism was, was over them still like a, like a heavy cloud. Centuries of tradition said the Gentiles are dogs, don't even eat with them. And so uh, this, this change had to take place. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So he asked them to strive together with him. And that word is uh, this, um, th- this word that's used for the games, the Greek games. And it's agonize. Uh, the, the Greek agonizo, to agonize. And this is what the athlete does. The athlete strives. The athlete expends energy and agonizes to win the race. You know, he said, when you pray with me, that's what we've got to do. So prayer therefore becomes not, you know, a relaxing, laid-back affair. You are working for what you are asking for. You are striving with God. And, uh, and God has, it seems, limited himself to the Church of God doing so, praying. And, and every time you delve into something that God has done, you will find somewhere behind that someone has been agonizing or some church or some group have been agonizing and praying for that very thing. It does seem that God uh, does not do things of totally of his own initiative without the participation, the cooperation of the people of God upon the earth. He also prays that he may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. And again, this was anti-Christian hatred was very high still. And uh, the Judaizers, those who hated this free gospel, were still at work uh, becoming enemies of the Church of God, wanting to kill the saints, wanting to drag them before the Sanhedrin and before the councils. That was still very much strong. And of course, we know that more than once they tried to do that to the apostle. And we know that at the end, that was going to happen in a big way. His last trip to Jerusalem, uh, that he was going to be imprisoned. He was, uh, you know, his life was in his hands at that time, except for the deliverance of God. So the Jews, they displeased God, he says, when he wrote, wrote to the, Thess- the Thess- Thessalonians, they displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles. They hated this notion of his speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved in this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. Secondly, he wanted them to pray with him for his service, that his service to Jerusalem may be acceptable. As I said, they may not, they may not receive it. Pray that their hearts will be prepared to accept this love gift that we are bringing. So traditional anti-Gentile sentiments still existed even within the church. Three, that he may come to them and be refreshed in their company. So we often think of the Apostle Paul as this giant, emotional giant, intellectual giant, who needs nothing for anybody like us. And yet, no, he says, I want to come and I want to be refreshed because I am a human still fighting this battle. And uh, and I need encouragement. Every uh, servant of God needs such encouragement from the saints of God on the way and that is what he is asking for then his beautiful benediction may the God of peace be with you all Amen we come to the 16th chapter personal greetings of the apostle this is the longest extended series of greetings in the whole of the Bible and here he names name after name after name uh, 26 in all names plus two unnamed, including two unnamed, nine of them are women, this is supposed to be the misogynist Paul, yet he greets nine of them in a significant way, and uh, some are Jewish, some of the names are Latin, some of the names are Greek, most being Greek names. But nevertheless, you see the universality of the Church of God in Rome. All the same. Neither Jew nor Greek. bond nor free. Some slaves, some masters. Some rich, some in high positions. Some in lowly positions. So, he says in uh, chapter 16, 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at at St. Crea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So we need to ask, who was Phoebe? Well, she is addressed here as a deaconess. Now, at that particular time, uh, it does not seem that there was a formal position of deaconess in the church. It was formalized some time later. There, was only, there were only bishops or overseers and deacons. But nevertheless, it just could mean servant, because that is the word. It means servant. Uh, we formalized it to this, uh, this official position, but it just means servant. Like, uh, like when you talk about a minister of the crown, uh, we say, uh, you know, he's a minister. So when you meet ministers, say, yeah, good morning, minister. You know, I had to do that when I was working in Teen Challenge in Brisbane, and... Uh, once meeting the health minister with others, and, uh, could, and I noticed all these public servants around him, you know, like uh, like hens around a, a feed bowl or something, and, oh, good morning, minister, how are you, minister, can we do this? And I thought, but, but minister means servant. So you're saying to this high official, servant. <laughs> but I wonder how much he serves us. Well, that's what we have here. She was a servant. She was a servant of the church in... Uh, Synchria. Now, Sancria was the port city for Corinth. So all the trade from Corinth went through Sancria. And, uh, and it seems that she most likely was a businesswoman, and she was going to Rome on business and probably did this uh, uh, quite regularly. So, it is to, sh- to her that Paul entrusts the letter. I want you, a woman, to take this letter to the church in Rome. And then he He commends her to the Roman church, or the church at Rome. Her commendation, Receive her in the Lord, help her in whatever she may need. She has been a helper of many and of myself. Now that is a wonderful commendation. Traditionally, uh, in the New Testament church, letters of commendation were always written. If someone turns up on your doorstep, I'm so-and-so, I'm from some church somewhere or other, and I'm a wonderful preacher and teacher, you need to get me to preach to you and all of that. They've said, well, no, thank you very much. We don't have a letter. We will not give you any responsibility. We will not put any trust in you until we have some commendation from the church of God somewhere. And of course, in our day, people turn up you know, in all sorts of places. They get into trouble in this church, and then next Sunday they're at your church. <laughs> so the rule of thumb is, yes, they will sit down, brother, and listen. Then we'll see how we go. Yes. Deaconess. Deacon means literally to kick up the dust. So a deacon is someone who kicks up the dust. Meaning, they run around doing your errands. You know, Here's a message, please take it to so and so. Up comes the dust as they run off into the sunset. This is what the deacon was. This person who works, who does things, who gets things done. Who is always on the go, kicking up the dust along the way. Now, it it was not called a spiritual gift. It was a recognised position. It was an appointed position in the early church, as was a bishop. Uh, And they had to have pretty much the same qualifications as the bishop. Just simply to kick up the dust and do things. But they are still worthy of recognition. Besides, all of us are called to be, or, or are called to serve one another. So we are all deacons in this sense. Serve one another. We all need to deek, as it says, in our relationships with the Church of God. Now we come to the greeting. So that was just a commendation for the lady who brought the letter. Now he is going to greet the, the saints in Rome and he knows all these names. He either had a very good memory or a very good notepad because he names so many names. And, uh, you know, we or I... Have so much trouble remembering a name, isn't that right, John? I can never remember a name. Oh, sorry, no. <laughs> it's awful. Yes, they teach you all these little ways of remembering names. You know, you you get introduced to, to Verna, and you're supposed to say, "Oh, hello, Verna. Nice to meet you, Verna. What have you been doing today, Verna? You know, uh, how's your week been, Verna?" And you keep on saying the name over and over again, and presumably it sinks in. And it's uh, it's all just a story. <laughs> Okay, greet Prisca and Aquila and the church in our house. Uh, sorry, um, uh, uh, Sorry, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet the church in their house. This couple had put their lives on the line for the Apostle. We know that they worked together in tent-making because they also were tent-makers. Paul was a tent-maker. But there were occasions, it seems, when they stood between Paul and real danger. They were prepared to stand with him uh, in the work that he had been given. They were courageous. I give thanks for all the churches as well. Now, you notice that uh, the church that meets in their house, so obviously... um, there was a church that met in their house in Rome. When you read this, uh, this, this list of names, sometimes you get a, a group of names together. This one, this one, this one, this one. And, or this one, this one, and this one, and all the brothers. And uh, what, what it seems to be is that these are all small churches within the larger uh, context of Rome. Uh, meeting, probably house meetings, house churches, or whatever. Uh, that's what the early church was made up of. There was no city tabernacle, no big barn somewhere (laughs) where they all met. I mean, there are stories you hear, but these are generally by megachurch people who want to justify the great cathedral that they just spent, you know, half a billion dollars on or something, But, uh, but not so here. This couple exercised discernment and understanding in their private instruction with the eloquent Apollos. You remember Apollos? A Jew was converted. First of all, it, it was under John the Baptist's ministry. And uh, they heard Priscilla and Aquila, heard Apollos speaking. And they, and they, they thought to themselves, well, this, this man really uh, has something. He's, uh, he's, he's preaching Christ, but only with the understanding of the ministry of John the Baptist. So it says they took him aside and they instructed him more perfectly in the way of the Lord. And uh, if you read that, um, you will notice in that record in Acts, it is Priscilla and Aquila. So Priscilla's name comes first, and Aquila's name comes second. So we say, well, um, what does this mean? Does it mean that Priscilla was the most important person? Probably what it means is that Priscilla was indeed the more gifted, she was the more able, to explain the way of God more perfectly than Aquila was. But if you look at uh, the writings of, now what is that one in? That is in uh, 1 Corinthians, yes. When the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, he says this, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, Mm -hmm. together with the church that is in their house, send you hearty greetings. So it seems that uh, uh, Priscilla was the more capable and the more able of the couple. But when it came to church matters, it is Aquila who is first. When Paul comes to greet the church in their house, it is Aquila and Priscilla, so named in that order. So, of course, he would have been an elder in his church, but Priscilla was not. By the way, Priscilla is the, uh, is the diminutive of Prisca. So we would think of the other way around, that Prisca was the diminutive of Priscilla. But, um, but no, it's the other way. Prisca is the formal name. Priscilla, the informal name. We come to the next section. Verse 5. We have a lot of names here. Greet my beloved Eponetus, who was the first convert of, uh, to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. The first named is Eponetus, probably the first convert of Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. The first fruits of proconsular Asia was this man, so it appears. Of course, he he was many years in Ephesus and exercised a great ministry in Ephesus, which of course spread out to the whole of Achaia, or Asia, at that particular time. Next named is Mary. There are hmm, six Marys by someone's count, in in the Bible uh, and she is one of them we won't try and uh, identify all of the six Miriam the Jewish name she toiled much for the church we must understand spiritual work here Uh, it was not she was cooking or something no she toiled much she worked probably in prayer for the church that was uh, in Rome greet Andronicus and Junia relatives of of Paul or fellow Jews. Now, we don't know whether it says, uh, whether it means uh, that they were related to him, whether it means uh, kinsmen, whether it means actual family, or whether it means Jews like me. Because Jews did see themselves as a separate entity and a separate family within the nations. Of course, you had Jews in Rome. You had Jews everywhere over the ancient world and they always saw themselves apart And therefore, my brothers, when Paul would speak to the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, he would address them as my brothers because we're all Jews. So maybe that's what he means here. We're really not not sure about that. So uh, greet this this pair, Andronicus and Junior. They were fellow prisoners. Most likely they were known to the other apostles or held in regard by them. It could be they were apostles i.e. messengers regarded by them but certainly not of the twelve now much is made of the name Junia uh, which is the uh, feminine or Junius which is the male now a lot of people who want to see women bishops and the like they want to say that this is Junia feminine and that she was an apostle so uh, there's a quite a bit of uh, abstruse reasoning for then to come to this point, it does not seem it's supported to me at all. But nevertheless, let's say that's what it was. If that was the case, and that therefore was the basis for all women in ministry, and uh, bishops and popes, if you like, whatever, it becomes a very large weight to be hanging on a very small hook. You know, when you have a, a great doctrine that's going to have a tremendous effect throughout, throughout the, the church, and you hang it on a very small hook, it becomes a very doubtful proposition. And if God means to communicate truth, then it's, it's going to come from more than one place. You can't just find one place and say, well, I think this is what it means, therefore, that's what it is. And that's, that is the error of that kind of reasoning because you really can't find support elsewhere. Yes, well, it's, uh, it, it, it depends on... Uh, yeah, kinsmen, yeah. Well, again, it, it depends on the, uh, on the translation and how they put it. The... Um, uh, yes, it, it, but kinsmen, I don't know it actually means male you know, in English we talk about men we're not allowed to say men anymore we have got to say human beings or something like that but when we said men it meant all people sometimes it meant male but, but often it meant men and women mankind because of course we understand that is in the, in the, in the correct trajectory because we all came from a man like I said yesterday Adam from one man, and that in the English language really presupposed that when, when, it, when we started using English, the idea of men, mankind, or even kinsmen, means relatives. Well, um, next is Amplius, perhaps another convert of the apostle, and dear to him, he could have been a slave. There is a, a catacomb under Rome that has his name, Amplius. We don't know if that's anything to do with this Amplius but there it is nevertheless. It's the right city. Greet Urbanus, a common slave name, fellow worker of Paul, and the beloved Stachys, maybe a personal friend of the Apostle. Greet Apelles, a tried and tested brother, and therefore approved. So there you have that word approved. The Apostle identifies certain people, and he says, now they are approved. So it was meant that people... Take notice of that when someone is approved. He's a trustworthy brother, this man. Greet the family of Aristobulus. Now, Bishop Lightfoot, uh, a Bible commentator, holds that this man was the grandson of Herod the Great. The greetings then could have been more, uh, could, could have been to all those connected with that household, probably referring to slaves. So when it says, greet the household of, we're probably looking at not just a family, mum, dad and the kids. We are, we are looking at a, a, a rich man who had a, a staff of slaves. And often the slaves became believers. Sometimes, you know, the owners became believers, the slaves became believers. Sometimes the, the slaves alone became believers. But here we have the household of, uh, of this man, Aristobulus, who it seems was most likely related to Herod the Great. We come to the next, verse 11. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Of course, we know Narcissus from Greek mythology, the guy who was all taken up with his own image. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, Who has been a mother to me as well? Greet Asyncritus, Philegion, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. The first one is. Herodian, another of Paul's relatives or kinsmen, perhaps also connected with Herod's court. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, he writes in Philippians. So, in Caesar's household, there were believers. He's saying those of Caesar's household, probably slaves, they also greet the saints uh, in, um, in in Philippi. Likewise, greet those in the Lord of the family of Narcissus, This man was a powerful and wealthy man (coughs) who was executed under Nero, but was not a Christian as far as we can tell. But his household was. So here he was uh, executed, the household of Narcissus. Now when that would have happened, his slaves would have have retained the name of Narcissus but passed to the emperor. So it is more likely than not that this family of Narcissus were slaves who now were owned by the emperor of Rome, having once belonged to this executed man uh, for some misdemeanor or, or whatever. Then we have greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa, probably sisters. Their names were characteristically pagan and almost certainly by the types of their names, female slaves. James said, the brother of low degree glories in his high estate. Though they be slaves, they have a high estate. We must also remember that the the slaves in Rome were not like slaves in the southern states of of America. They were were not in chains and the like. Often the slave was was more capable than his master. Often the slave had total uh, responsibility for the household because he could add up figures and uh, do accounting, and such like. Uh, but he still was owned by his master. Maybe he lost his freedom, got into debt, and was bought out as a slave. But, uh, but yes, the general picture of slaves is, was somewhat different to what we would understand it by more modern history of what slaves were. I mean, the, these ones were free to come to church, which, it, which certainly would have been in the early hours of the Lord's Day, you know, Sunday morning very early, before they had to work, when the church traditionally met. I was once at a conference, pastor's conference, and there was a big shot preacher, really big shot there, really big shot. And uh, you know, everyone was listening, hanging on every word, and, uh, and I was with a group of, 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 of men, and, uh, and he was there, and he was saying very thing, uh, various things, and then he made this comment. He said, if you want to fly with the eagles, you don't run with the turkeys. Now what did he mean? In one sense, that's quite a true statement, spiritually speaking. But what he was meaning was, if, you, if you're going to fly like an eagle, don't get around with unsuccessful people. Don't get, get around with people who don't make the grade. Don't get around with people who are not are unsuccessful by the measure of this world. It doesn't matter what they are. You know, so you see some of these guys have more in common with a successful millionaire than with a brother of low degree. You know? So he says, "Don't run with the turkeys." But Paul says, "Oh, look! I love the turkeys. You know, <laughs> give them my greetings. Give them my greetings." The brother of low degree glories in his high estate. Greet the beloved Persis. Now Persis was a female name; it was a woman. He says, "Greet the beloved Persis, a fellow labourer, a woman who had worked hard in the Lord. Maybe." age or illness had intervened by this stage. But note this, when Paul wanted to express his affection for men, he would say, My beloved, my beloved Stachus, my beloved Epinetus." But when he referred to Persis, he said, The beloved, Persis. So you see the care with which he differentiated, still expressing his affection, but just one word different to make a big difference. And, and, a, and a respect for the gender of who he's talking about. So he was a, a very sensitive apostle. Greek Rufus. Maybe this is Rufus, the son of Simon of Cyrene. Now you, re- you read in Mark, about um, Mark 15. Now this was Simon who was called out the, you know, to carry the cross of Jesus. And there it says, this Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now this is the only Rufus that we have in Scripture. So it may well be this is the same Rufus that he is greeting uh, in Rome. And it says that uh, his mother, the mother of Rufus, uh, greet her. She also was mother to the great apostle himself and to me. Uh, Me, Paul, who had left all for Christ. And uh, this man said, well, when, it, when she saw Paul, you know, have you been eating well, brother? You know, you're looking a little bit pale. Sit down here, you know, take some of this porridge. I'll go and get some greens for you. You know, started mothering the apostle. His mother and mine, says the great apostle. When, you, when you're in India, everybody calls you uncle. Any, anybody. Everybody calls you, well, when well, not everybody, every young person. Every young person says, oh, uncle, uncle. You know. So you're uncle to lots and lots of people when you go to, when you go to India. And, uh, and they all want you to pray for them. Yeah, you're in the campground, you're walking around, oh, please pray for me. Next one, oh, please pray for me. Thank you, uncle. Yes, praise God. <laughs> so you're related to everybody. Suddenly half of India is, uh, is uh, your nephews and nieces. Very wonderful. <laughs> you get it greet Asyncritus, Philegion, Hermes, Petrobos, Hermas and the brothers. There is a, a British warship called Hermes or Hermas I think, H- HMS Hermes. Hermas, I think it's one of the aircraft carriers, yeah, yes. The early church met mostly as house churches as I said, small groups like this one, uh, this is the second now of three, small groups a list of names, and the brothers. So there were others there that he did not name. Greet Philogos. Now Philogos, philio, logos, brotherly love and word. In other words, he talked too much. (laughs) Someone defines it as chatterbox. Philogos, a lover of words, multiplying words. Well, we don't know if that's really what he was like, but that's what his mother or his father called him. Julia, commonest of the female names or names for female slaves. Julia. So we can kind of be pretty sure that when you had certain names that were given to slaves that they would have been slaves. You know, the the witch and the the well would not have named their children what was a common slave name. Nerus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints. See how Paul remembers each individual. Each significant member of this one body. Again, how he did this, I don't know. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This this exhortation appears five times in the New Testament. And usually the word, with usually the word holy attached to it. No wonder that the pagans exclaimed how they loved one another. And yet, church history tells us that Clement of Alexandria speaks of people, quote, who make the churches resound with kissing the shameless use of the kiss occasions foul and evil suspicions, said Clement of Alexandria, he was a bit concerned about all this kissing that was going on, you know it was kind of like a charismatic church you remember the charismatic period when all this, everyone was kissing everybody you know, and it uh, it kind of went past what, what he's talking about here yeah all the churches greet you. And now he's talking about most of the churches were in the east, not in Jerusalem. They were, uh, they were in, in the east, and yet here he is speaking to Rome. All the churches from there, Jerusalem and, and then westward, greet you. You are the furthest west now, and, and all the greetings are coming to you. The churches of the Gentiles and those of Judea. Then we come to uh, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive, for your obedience is well known to all, so that that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The constant danger he highlights here. The constant danger for those who cause divisions, those who create obstacles, those who teach doctrines contrary to what you have been taught. Some time ago, I I thought to myself, and I was in the Assemblies of God, I thought to myself, there must be no heretics in the Assemblies of God because I never hear of any. And then I thought, well, if there were in the New Testament church, why should I think that they're not around today? Maybe we're just not looking for them or or we're so so against the idea of doctrine that there's nothing to measure anything by anymore. Um, So the point was, yes, even today, we have to remain vigilant as to what is taught, as to who causes divisions. Is is there somebody or something coming into the fellowship that is going to be a division maker? Who is going to to make divisions? Or who is going to sow the seeds of false teaching? Uh, Yes, it is still applicable today. The warning remains. Christian charity would lead us to be unwilling to deal with such things. But, Paul overrides that in this point. Watch out for them. Turn away from them. Give them no place. Such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, he said. Many I have told you, now this is, uh, he writes, where is this, in the to the Philippians, the Philippians he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on on earthly things. Now, if if Judas was one of the twelve and persisted with the apostolic band right up to the end, why should we think it strange that that could be possible today? You know, when Jesus was there, though he said, you know, uh, one of you is a devil, and I know that. Not that there's any devils here, but we, re- we remain vigilant, don't we, all the time. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive. I had uh, dealings with a guy overseas once, missionary, who fell into this category. And I remember a friend of mine told me he was at a church in this country raising money. And he, and he said to these people, you know, you're the only people who support this wonderful work we're doing. The only people. Okay, that's fine. The same guy, this friend of ours, uh, next Sunday was in another city altogether. And this missionary speaker was, was also there at that very same church. And he said to the congregation, you know, you're the only church that supports us. You're the only ones. And I remember this guy had this, this technique. He would get up alongside you and uh, he would speak to you. It's just you and me, brother, you know. I'm sharing this truth. We, just you and me, we're the only ones who know about this. And I read this you know, smooth talk, flattery, deceiving the naive. So we must always look past the smooth talk and see what's really going on here. It's a negative thing, sure. But if, if we don't pay attention to the negative, we may be taken for a ride. That's what he's saying. The obedience of this church to the truth was a commendable thing and a source of great joy to the Apostle. But they needed to go on in the development of wisdom and discernment. They needed to be able to distinguish and separate good and evil. Be wise, he says, as to what is good. Be innocent as to what is evil. One uh, one old-time commentator said, too good to deceive, too wise to be deceived too good to deceive, too wise to be deceived. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. To the Philippians, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, whatsoever things are pure, lovely, whatsoever things are good, of good report, think on these things. The church in Rome was at war, so Paul says Satan will soon be placed under your feet. Now ultimately of course we know in the end that shall be. He is a defeated enemy at this point. And, uh, but the day will come of course when the offspring of the serpent from the Garden of Eden shall have his head crushed. But this present dimension of our warfare, of our, our contact with the accuser of the brethren remains. He is there presenting himself before God, accusing the brethren perpetually, always. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, he says. Then he concludes in verse 21. Now he is writing uh, or giving greetings from those who are with him. Those in Corinth, he is extending greetings. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, as do... Lucius and Jason and Sospater, my kinsman. Tertius, who wrote this letter, remember the Amanuensis. greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, Erastus, the city treasurer. And our brother Quatris, greet you. These brothers in Corinth, along with Paul, share their greetings. So Paul allows the brothers to add to this letter Timothy greets you, Paul's son in the faith. Lucius, Jason, Sospater greets you, again, kinsmen or relatives. Tertius, the amanuensis, the one who transcribed the letter. Gaius greets you. This man was Paul's host in Corinth, obviously a, a, a well off man. Uh, the church met at his house, or uh, he was. He gave hospitality to the church. We don't know precisely what that may have meant. He was, it seems, a prominent man, large-hearted, hospitable. And again, he was different to the Gaius uh, who was baptised by Paul, referred to in Corinthians. Erastus greets you. The city treasurer in Corinth. Prominent man, important man. And then Quatris. All he is is our brother. <laughs> Not a treasurer, just our brother, Quatrus. Not prominent, but his greetings just as readily included in the list. All these names indicative of the warm unity and affection that characterise the apostolic church. Not only within the church, but between the churches, between the fellowships, and that's what this is. This affection that that went across all boundaries from one church to another. Now unto him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith to the only wise God. Um, (coughs) Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The doxology, that is to glorify God. Doxa and logia, saying. To glorify God in a saying, in words, the doxology. Now unto him, and then it finishes to the only wise God, and in between you have uh, the two poles at either end and these words that he shares. According to my gospel, Paul owned this gospel, He was commissioned as apostle to the Gentiles to bring it and also to add increasing revelation at that time because Romans was not the end of the story. That was the foundational. He yet had to reveal the truth of the church, of its heavenly character, of the fact it was Jew and Gentile in one new man. Also, he had to reveal in uh, the Thessalonian letters about the coming of Christ, about the day of the Lord, about the wrapping up of all things this entire revelation had been committed to him to take to the Gentile world, which is to us. So an added mystery element was yet to be made manifest and in scripture has been made manifest to us. So we have these seven letters for us, or seven churches with nine letters of which this is the fundamental one that lead us on to increased understanding and blessing in God. So the Lord bless you. Thank you, brother. Amen.